So this afternoon about 3.30, Jake Graves came in my office and we were talking about a few things. And I asked him what he was preaching on tonight. And we're looking at Acts 15. And Jake Graves said, well, we're looking because Sunday, he knows my preaching plan. Sunday we're going to look at the first part of Acts 16. He said, we're going to do the back half of Acts 16. I thought that would be a good fit. And my response to him was, so you're skipping the most important chapter in the book of Acts. Now, when I said that to him, he's still a little bit angry that we've stripped him of his, his pepper trophy, that he lost that. He's still a little bit angry about that. He's a little bit on edge because the Mavericks are playing tonight. And so he got a little mouthy, and he popped off like a cocky youth pastor and said, well, every chapter in the Bible is important. You're not supposed to say one's more important than the other. And I said, well, okay. I said, so you think Leviticus is as important as Romans? And he was still feeling mouthy. And he said, without the law, we don't have the gospel. And I said, get out of, get out of here. Just leave. Just get out of here. I think all of the Bible's important. I also think that you can make a case that the most important chapter in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 15. Now that's a pretty big claim because there's a lot of important things, lots of monumental things that happen in the book of Acts. And I'm just going to put a few of them uh, up on the screen, a few possible contenders. Pentecost is a pretty big deal, right? When the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples, like that's a pretty major epical thing in biblical redemptive history. Peter preaches the first sermon in all of church history, and 3,000 people join the church. That's a pretty big deal. The church is born on Pentecost. Peter and John, they get hauled before the authorities. They're told to keep quiet, and they have to make a decision. What are we going to do? Are we going to obey Jesus? Or are we going to obey the government? And they make the right decision. They say, if you tell us to disobey Jesus, we have to obey Jesus. We can't not do what Jesus told us to do. It's a major point in the book of Acts. Deacons, Stephen's death, the first martyr, the Ethiopian and his salvation. Corey talked about that. Cornelius in chapter 10 and his salva salvation. The, the gospel comes to Gentiles, the conversion of Saul, which Corey preached about. The very first mission trip, Chris Harrington said that's the most important. The very first mission trip, how could you say anything's more important than that? So there's lots of claimants to what is the most important thing that happens in the book of Acts. What we're going to talk about tonight is very exciting stuff. It's a church business meeting. What could be more exciting than a church business meeting? What could be more important than a church business meeting? And what I'm saying to you is that I think much of the book of Acts builds towards this point, and I think much of what follows in the book of Acts after chapter 15 is derivative of this business meeting. It's a very, very, very important chapter. And so we're going to talk about this business meeting, but first I want to put a few ideas on the table. A couple of biblical Old Testament ideas and then one concept from the book of Acts that you really need to wrap your mind around. So big picture in the Bible. In the Old Covenant, or you could say the Old Testament, those two words essentially mean the same thing. Uh, the focus is on the Hebrew people, clearly, but Gentiles could convert and become Jews. 
So starting in Genesis 12, when God begins to deal with Abraham and his family, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Hebrew people and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, clearly, 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 the old covenant is focused on the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. However, all the way through that storyline, there was the possibility that Gentile people could convert and could become functionally Jewish or Hebrews. There were Egyptians that left with the Hebrews when they left Egypt. A mixed multitude went up out of the land. And some of those Egyptians said, we don't want to be Egyptians anymore. We're done with that. We want to be Hebrews. We want to follow this God. Rahab did that. She said, I don't want to be an Ammonite anymore. I don't want to be part of the the people of Jericho anymore. I want to go with you guys. Whatever happens here, I'm with you. One of the best examples of this, we've talked about it recently in Sunday school, if your class is using the Gospel Project, is the book of Ruth, where Ruth says to Naomi, I don't want to go back to the Moabites. Where you go, I'll go. Promised land, I'm going. And your people are going to be my people. Those aren't my people anymore. And your God is going to be my God. Gentiles could convert, and you see that throughout the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. At the same time, one of the things you need to wrap your mind around is that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there are hints. There's a lot of them. There are hints about the future salvation of the Gentiles. That Gentiles would be folded into the people of God. We're not going to talk about all these. And this is certainly not all of them. I'm telling you the Old Testament is littered with them. Almost every book, almost every chapter, there's some hint the Gentiles are going to be brought in. I'll just give you a few examples here. Genesis 12, 3. God said to Abram, I'm going to call you out. You're going to go to a new land. I'm going to make you into a new special people. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Yes, the focus is going to be on your family, but the reason I'm focusing on your family is to bring blessing to all of the nations, not just to your offspring. The book of Psalms, over and over and over again, I didn't even list Psalm 67, talks about the nations are going to come and worship the Lord, the God of Israel. The nations, the peoples, the Gentiles are going to come Amos 9 is important because it's going to be referenced in this business meeting. Amos 9 talks about this rebuilding of the booth of David. And then there's a promise that the Gentiles would be called by God's name. When God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt, He put His name on those people. He revealed His name to Moses. And the prophet Amos says, A day is coming when the Gentiles, the nations will be called by God's name. So there's all these hints about the future salvation of the Gentiles. Now, the book of Acts. This is really important. Background material in Acts if you're going to make sense of Acts chapter 15. The book of Acts describes salvation being granted to Jews, then Samaritans, then Gentiles. And we're not going to trace this through in the text. You can look at these chapters for yourself. Let me just give you the big picture. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, very important moment. The Holy Spirit comes. And salvation in a full sense is given to the Jewish people who were waiting for power to come upon them. The apostles and the group of 120 that are in the upper room. Salvation comes to the Jewish people. 
the, it's Pentecost, so there's all of these pilgrims in Jerusalem, Jewish pilgrims. They receive the Holy Spirit when they believe the good news about Jesus and they respond to Peter's sermon. That is a Gentile experience, excuse me, a Jewish experience of salvation. And one of the signs that salvation has come to these people, Acts chapter 2, is they speak in tongues. Really important. They speak in tongues. They speak in other languages that they haven't learned. Fast forward to Acts chapter 8. The gospel makes it to a place called Samaria. A group of people who are essentially half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They have a mixed heritage. And the gospel comes to these people. And when the apostles finally show up, it's important that the apostles show up. The Jewish apostles show up. They've believed the good news about Jesus. They lay their hands on them. They pray for them. And the indication in Acts 8 is that it's evident that the Holy Spirit comes upon those Samaritan believers because they too speak in tongues. You fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision. He's sent to Cornelius who is a Gentile. And he shares the gospel with Cornelius and his family. And they listen and they believe the good news about Jesus. And if you read towards the end of Acts Acts chapter 10, they believe in Jesus, they repent of their sins, they're baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And what do they do? They speak in tongues. You keep going. If you get all the way to Acts chapter 19, there's one last story about speaking in tongues. It's a a mission trip of Paul, and he finds this group of guys who used to follow John the Baptist, and they've heard only part of the story, but not all of the story. Paul fills them in on all of the story, lays their hands on them. They believe. He prays for them. They receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. Now, sometimes people will tell you the book of Acts is filled with people speaking in tongues. No, it's not. Those are the four times. It's not even specifically mentioned in Acts 8, but it's suggested in Acts 8. Where the Holy Spirit falls on a new group of people, new ethnic group of people. First Jews, then Samaritans, then Gentiles, then this last group of Old Covenant believers. And when that happens, when the apostles show up, it's always in the presence of one of the apostles. The Holy Spirit falls, and the evidence of that, the Holy Spirit filling those new believers, is that they speak in tongues really important that you understand this progression in Acts to make sense of this business meeting that we're about to talk about. This speaking in tongues is a double sign, okay? It's a double sign. It is a sign to the Jewish apostles that Samaritans and Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit just like they did. God is not making a distinction between them. God is showing the Jewish apostles something important. And God is showing the Samaritans and the Gentiles something important because they don't actually receive the Holy Spirit until the Jewish apostles show up. And God is saying to these new Samaritan and Gentile believers, I know you don't like Jews. I know you think they're arrogant. I know you think they are on an ego trip. I know they're annoying. But you're going to follow their leadership. They're the foundation. The apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church that's being built. So it's this two-way sign for the Jews that the Gentiles have been brought in and for the Gentiles that they are to submit to this Gentile or this Jewish leadership. So all that plays into the business meeting, Acts chapter 15. Here's the big idea of the business meeting. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone, all for the glory of God. Chris talked about our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If that's our chief end, it's certainly the chief end of our salvation. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's all for the glory of God. So, look with me at Acts chapter 15. Let's read verse 1 to 21. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. They brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But, here's an echo of verse 1, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he's quoting Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and verse 12. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood." For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, this evening we are thankful for your word. We pray that as we read this account of an ancient church business meeting, an ancient church council, that you would open our eyes to the truth of salvation, that we would have understanding that we would have a genuine experience of salvation and that we would understand the good news of Jesus so that we can take it out 
to those who need to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know as well as I do that church business meetings can be contentious at some churches and in some places. I had a professor, one of my Ph.D. professors at Southern Seminary. His name was Tim Booker. He was an interim pastor while I was a seminary student. And the church he was an interim pastor was a difficult, divided, angry church. And they had weekly Wednesday night business meetings. Weekly Wednesday night business meetings. And he said it was regular that he thought on Wednesday nights fistfights were going to break out in the business meeting. He said they also had a lot of programming on Wednesday night, and it was a, a fairly large church, and they would have lots of guests come on Wednesday nights. And he said, as the interim pastor, he said, I can't let guests see this. That cannot be your first exposure to this church. We've got to deal with these issues, but we don't need to do it with guests in the room. So he actually created a new deacon ministry. He pulled some of his good, trusted, reliable deacons off to the side, and he said, your job is to intercept guests and take them on a 25-minute tour of the church building on Wednesday nights. Just, I don't care where you take them. Show them the restroom. Show them the playground. Show them the Sunday school room. Show them whatever you want to show them. But I need about 25 minutes where the guests are not in this room. It's an example that business meetings can be contentious. That's certainly true in Baptist churches, and that's been true throughout church history. Let me tell you about four contentious church business meetings. In the year 325, there was a church business meeting, also known as a church council in Nicaea. There was a heretic named Arius who began teaching that Jesus was not truly God. And they had a council to settle this debate. And at the council, at the business meeting, they said, Arius, we disagree with you. This is not what we believe or what we have ever believed as Christians. They condemned his teachings and they affirmed the true, full deity of Jesus Christ. In the year 381 in Constantinople, there was a heretic named Apollinarius. And he was confused about the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. And just Decades later, the church had to turn around and they had this business meeting, they had this council, and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Apollinarius, you're saying things that we don't believe to be true. What we believe is that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God. He's not just pretending to be one or the other. He is truly man, he's truly God. They condemned Apollinarius and they stood for the truth of who Jesus was. The year 431 in Ephesus. They called a meeting. There was a false teacher named Nestorius. And he was confused about Christ could have two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And his solution didn't quite sound right to people. It didn't quite sit right with people. So they had this business meeting. They had this council. They sorted it out. They condemned Nestorius and they said, Jesus has two natures in one person. They settled this issue and they condemned the false teaching. In the year 451, Chalcedon, they had to defend, once again, the doctrine of the incarnation from a man named Eutychus. This cycle played, over, played out over and over and over again in the early church. Confusion about who Jesus Christ was. Now, church historians look at these and they say these are the, the earliest ecumenical councils. Traditionally, Protestants look at those four and give them a thumbs up and say, yes, the things affirmed at those councils are things that we believe about Jesus, we believe the Bible teaches 
about Jesus. If you're part of an Orthodox denomination, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, you like the first three, you don't like the fourth one. They think that's where the the councils get cut off. We don't want anything to do with the fourth one. If you're Catholic, you like these four plus 17 others. And you say there's a whole lot more church business meetings that have come up with good stuff since then, and some of those meetings have been very recent. When I tell you that Protestants accept these four ecumenical church councils or business meetings and the decisions that came out of them, I am not saying to you that the decisions of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon are equal to the Bible. That's not what I'm saying to you. We believe in Scripture alone as our final authority in matters of faith and practice. But guess what? Arius, Apollinarius, Nestorius, and Eutychus all talked about the Bible. And they said things about the Bible that everyone else said, that's not right. And they couldn't just quote a Bible verse back and forth at each other because they're all quoting Bible verses. And so the church had to come together and say, no, 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 no. We don't believe that. We believe this. And that process has played out in church history over and over and over again on a big scale and on a small scale where Christian people have had to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what we believe. False teachers come along, they twist the truth of God's Word, they say things with biblical verses attached to them that we understand, we know are not right, they're not true. And the church from time to time has to stand up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not right. We need to condemn that false teaching and we need to be clear about what we believe the Bible says on this topic. What we're reading in Acts chapter 15 is essentially that. There's an idea that pops up about salvation And the church has to come together and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not right. Yes, you're quoting lots of good Old Testament verses, but we don't think you're really understanding what the Bible says correctly. And what we actually believe is this. And they have to condemn a false teaching and they have to be clear about the truth. Let's talk about Acts chapter 15. The question is salvation. What was the doctrinal issue that prompted the first church council in Jerusalem. Some people were teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That it was necessary for salvation. Acts chapter 15 verse 1, they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's stronger than, hey, you should do this. That's saying, unless you do this thing, You cannot be saved. You see it again down in verse 5. There were believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They rose up and they said, you understand, these guys believed in Jesus. If you ask these guys, verse 1 and verse 5, do you believe in Jesus? Say, absolutely I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. I'm a Christian. But what they were teaching is it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision was the big one, right? It's one thing to give up your crawfish and your lobster and your bacon. It's another thing for a grown man who's a Gentile to be circumcised. And that's where many of them drew the line. And these teachers are standing up in Jerusalem and they're saying, unless you're circumcised and unless you keep all of the law of Moses, it wasn't just circumcision, it was all of the law of Moses, you can't be saved. You have to keep all the law of Moses. You've got to keep the ceremonial laws clean and unclean. 
you got to keep the food laws. No more bacon. No more red lobster. You got to keep uh, the, the festivals and the calendar and all the things that are coming up, the Passover. You got to do all these things. If you don't do all these things, you can't be saved. God says to do them. And you have to be circumcised. If you don't do these things, you cannot be saved. What they are doing is the one thing that maybe comes most naturally to human beings. And that is we come up with lists of do's and don'ts to the end of salvation. Do this and don't do that and then you can go to heaven when you die. Human beings are really good at that. We have invented countless systems of religion and spirituality. Do this, don't do that. Some of those systems of religion and spirituality don't even have a God at the center of them. They're atheistic. They're naturalistic. They're secular. But there's still a code. Do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. These teachers had forgotten a couple of things. They'd forgotten, number one, going all the way back to Abraham, that Abraham was not saved by circumcision or anything that he did or did not do. He was saved by faith. Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, who lived long before Moses, was saved by faith in the Lord. And these teachers had forgotten that Jesus wasn't just another Abraham, wasn't just another Moses, but Jesus had instituted the new covenant. There had been a transition in the covenants. So this issue had to be sorted out. And here's the questions that they're having to sort out. Are the Jews going to recognize that Samaritans and Gentiles can be saved? Are they all going to go to the same church together? Are they going to split up and go to their own churches? Are the Gentiles going to give up eating this, 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 and this? Are the Gentiles going to show up to our Passover Seder? Are they going to keep all the festivals and all the cleanliness rules? Was Jesus enough? Everyone in this debate loved Jesus, at least they said. There was not anybody in this business meeting that said, I'm anti-Jesus. The question is, is Jesus enough, Jesus alone, or do you need Jesus plus something else in order to be saved? So they had a business meeting. Who were the leading voices at the first church council? Voice number one was Peter. Peter spoke about the salvation of the Gentiles. And I want to give Peter his due here, because when I tell you that Peter's first, a lot of you say, of course Peter was first. Peter was always first. Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut. But notice, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Peter's growing. He let the debate go on for a little while before he chimed in. He wasn't the first impulsive, bossy, brash voice. There was much debate, and then Peter stood up, and basically what Peter says is, look, God sent me to a Gentile. Name's Cornelius. And he believed the good news about Jesus. And when he believed the good news about Jesus, this is Acts chapter 10, he received the Holy Spirit just like we did. God did not make a distinction between us. 
We believed in Jesus. We received the Holy Spirit. We spoke in tongues. Cornelius believed in Jesus. He received the Holy Spirit. He spoke in tongues. You see the importance of that sign? God is showing Peter and the apostles. He's not making a distinction between these groups of people. God didn't make a distinction. Why would we make a distinction? Holy Spirit fell on us just like it fell on them. Secondly, Barnabas and Paul. They spoke about their mission. Verse 12, Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You understand this stuff in the book of Acts about these miracles that happen aren't necessarily there so you and I can copy that today like some people say. These things were important signs in the earliest days of the church showing men like Barnabas and Paul, these miracles are done among the Gentiles, that God had accepted these people by faith. And Barnabas and Paul speak up and they say, look, we've been on mission trips, we've been all over the place, God's done amazing things among the Gentiles. Could it be that all those Old Testament hints have come to fulfillment and that God is saving these people? Just like He saved us, that He's not making a distinction between us? Thirdly, James. James spoke up about the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9. This is James, there's a lot of James in the New Testament. This is Jesus' half-brother. James who used to think Jesus was crazy. James who had a face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus and changed his tune. James who most likely wrote the book of James at the end of your New Testament. He was a pillar in the early church. He stood up. He says, you know what? I think Amos 9 has come to fulfillment. I think the booth of David has been restored in the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, the city of David. I think God has fulfilled that promise. And I think God is now calling the Gentiles by his name just like he said he would do in the Old Testament. So James points them back to the Scriptures. Notice what James says. Look at verse 19. It's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He doesn't use the word repentance, but that's repentance. Turning from sin and turning to God. Turn away from sin and you turn to the true God. And he's saying the Gentiles have done that. They are turning from their sin, from their idolatry, and they are turning to the true God and putting their faith in Him. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, I think that we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. This is the decision of this council. What was the outcome of the first church council in Jerusalem? The church urged Gentile converts to make a clean break with their pagan past. Their pagan past. Idols, sexual immorality, animals slash food that has been strangled. That's not just a Jewish kosher thing. That's a pagan temple thing and blood. Stay away from those things. If a Gentile convert was going to stay away from those four things, they would never again step foot in a pagan temple. Ever. Because that's the stuff that was happening in a pagan temple. And they were everywhere. I was preparing just today for Sunday, Acts 16, the city of Philippi, and I looked at a map that archaeologists have come up with with all the pagan temples in this city of Philippi. It's amazing how many there are. It's like a church on every corner. A pagan temple. 
to this God, to that God, to the emperor, to this cult, to that guild, to whatever. And when James says, look, no more idols, no more sexual immorality, nothing strangled, and no more blood, what he's saying to them, the Gentiles got the message loud and clear is, you've got to make a clean break. You've got to turn from your pagan past, and you have to turn to the true and living God. You understand that that's biblical conversion. And today, we've watered it down to, would you just pray a prayer? Would you just sign a card? Would you just slip your hand up with every head bowed and every eye closed? Would you just walk an aisle? Would you just get in the baptistry? We boiled it down to these things that we do. We're good at that. Do this thing. Don't do that thing. Do this thing. That's what we do. That's what they were doing. That's not biblical conversion. Biblical conversion is repentance and faith. Repentance, turning from your sin, faith, turning to the true God. That's what they're asking these Gentiles to do. So you can keep reading in verse 22 to 35. James, Barnabas, Paul, Peter, they write a letter. And they send this letter to all these new Gentile churches. And here's the summary of the letter. No idols. No sexual immorality. Nothing strangled and no blood. I.e., don't ever go back to the pagan temples. It's got to be a clean break. And you've got to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to put your faith in Him and follow after Him. You've got to turn from and you've got to turn to. You've got to repent and you've got to believe. You don't need to worry about the shellfish or the pig meat, pork chops. You can have pork chops for dinner. You don't need to worry about showing up to the, the Feast of Trumpets this year. You can skip that church fellowship if you want to. It's okay. You don't have to do all these Jewish things. You don't have to be Jewish. You can be Gentile, but you can't be pagan. And you've got to get out of those temples. You've got to leave your life of sin and idolatry, and you have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the letter they sent. So what do we do with this business meeting? Let me just say a couple of things quickly. This business meeting, this council, and the issue they're dealing with and the way they dealt with it, reminds us that it will fall to every generation to defend the faith for all, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Every generation must defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints, including us. And it's happened on repeat throughout church history over and over and over again. A false teacher pops up, they twist the scriptures, and the church has to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not trying to add to the Bible here. We're just saying that you're misusing the Bible, and that's not what scripture teaches, and that's not the truth, and we're going to condemn that view, and we're going to be clear about what we've always believed. So look, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, the issue that they're dealing with is salvation. It's a matter of soteriology. Okay? It's a soteriological doctrinal error. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And they're confused. They think they have to do something. They think they have to keep the law of Moses. And they had to condemn that view and they had to clarify what the truth is. All those dates I gave you, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, the issue there was Christology. Who is Jesus? Who is He? Is He really 
truly God? Is he really, truly human? Is he like 50-50? Is he like 75-25? Is he like all one pretending to be the other? What is he? And they had to sort that out. And over and over and over again, it took a while. There's no internet. There's no trains. There's no cars. There's no scooters. It takes a while. Decades. Hundreds of years to sort this out, to get everyone together and to say, wait a minute, not that, but this. Not that, but this. And it takes a while. You know what? You get into the Reformation, we had to cycle back to the question of salvation again. We had to come back and say, wait a minute, we've lost that one. We're square on who Jesus is, but we've missed it on the salvation question. Do you know what the issue is that we're going to have to be clear about and things that we're going to have to condemn today? It's anthropology. What is a human being? What is a human being? Do we get to decide that? Is it up for debate? I had a dozen conversations with my children this week about a dozen things that when I was 20 years old, I would have never thought I would have had to talk to my kids about those things. If you don't talk to your kids about those things, someone else is going to talk to your kids about those things. So you better talk to your kids about those things, and you better say, wait a minute, wait a minute, not this, this. Not this, this. Did you ever think in a Southern Baptist church, in a new member class, we would have to define what a human being is to people who are interested in being a member of our church? Because we have to do that. What is a human being? What's marriage? What's a man? What's a woman? We have to say all of that up front because the world has completely lost its mind about this issue. Now, you may say, I don't really want to fight that fight. I'd like to go back to salvation or Christology or could we talk about the end times? Could we argue about the millennium or something like that? Those were the good old days, the 80s. We just argued about when Jesus was going to come back. That was fantastic. You don't get to pick. You don't get to pick what the world believes and what the world throws at you. And listen, it's not enough to just quote a Bible verse over and over again. Yes, Scripture is our sole, final, ultimate authority. But the church has to be clear because all of these false teachers are quoting the Bible too. So the church has to be clear and say, not this, this. This is not what we have historically believed or what the Bible teaches, but this is what we believe to be true. And the issue that we're going to have to be clear about is anthropology. Here's the second thing, and this will never go away. Just cycle back to the big idea. You come away from Acts 15, and you need to be reminded that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's all for God's glory. We need to have that drilled into our head over and over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over and over again. Look in the text with me quickly. Acts 15 verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through grace. Grace. Not by any good thing that we do. And not because we didn't do a certain bad thing. We're bad people. And we break the rules. And the only hope that we have of salvation is that God is a gracious God. We need His grace. Look at verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Believe. 
Verse 9, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. I know that in English, the word believe and faith sound like two entirely different words. It's the same thing. One's a verb, one's a noun. Believe is the verb. Faith is the noun. It's the same root word. It means the exact same thing. The only way that a person can be saved is by the grace of God and receiving salvation through faith. Not through a work, but through faith in what God has done to save His people. Look at verse 11. Again, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. He is the only one who can offer grace to sinful people. Because He is the only one who has died for sinful people. The book of Acts says it in Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. It is only through the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for salvation outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is for the glory of God. Acts chapter 15, verse 31, if you just read ahead a little bit. This letter goes around, and when they had read the letter, they rejoiced. That means they worshipped with joy. They gave glory to God for the truth of the gospel. They gave glory to God. They worshiped with joy because God was gracious to sinners, because they could receive His grace by faith in that Jesus Christ had lived and died for us so that He could offer us this salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's all for the glory of God. Let's pray.